So to read the book of Joshua, as we're doing as a church right now, is to encounter verses like this. So Joshua subdued the whole region. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of, Jake, uh, God of Israel, had commanded. Now this is a lot to take in. So let's slow down here. A person is commanded by God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God you and I worship, to kill every person in the region, soldiers and non-combatants, men, women, children, grandpa, and the baby. Imagine you're at Starbucks with a friend and the subject comes out to church or religion or something along those lines. And, and your friend says, you know, I, I just could never believe in a God who would command, let alone countenance, the kind of violence, the genocide you see in, in the Bible. It's repulsive. And now it's your turn to respond. How are you going to respond? Yeah, I mean, many Christians really hope this question doesn't come up. <laughs> or maybe offer, well, I don't really know, um, but God commanded it and God is good, so I'm sure there was some good intended somehow. Maybe that's a mystery, uh, whatever. Now, Perhaps there was a time when that answer there would have, I think, cut it, but it definitely has not since 9-11, which, as you know, happened 20 years ago this week, coming week. It was 9-11 that made Sam Harris leave his PhD program in neuroscience and go write his best-selling book, The End of Faith. And one of his big points in that book, although Islam takes a little bit more beating than Christianity, is that Religion is a source of conflict. And I have to say, his point has registered, and it has become one of the reasons that a number of young people who grew up in church are going, yeah, not me anymore, and are leaving the faith. As one Christian blogger wrote, why would a good God send his people to take land that belongs to another nation, is this just one more example of people using religion to justify violence and conquest? My God's telling me to take your land, so here I come. If Jesus says to love your enemies, why does God declare war on them in the Old Testament? So we all need to lean into these questions and, and do, do some hard work here. Uh, I have to be honest, they could take an entire semester's course. That would actually be good. So maybe you should sign up for a course with Drs. McCauley or McGowan. But um, in case you don't have that option, in tonight's sermon, I want to suggest a couple of things that have been helpful to me. And maybe they'll be helpful to you or to your friends as this comes up. Okay, here's suggestion number one that we read Joshua as the kind of literature it is, okay? Now, when you and I pick up the Psalms and read those, we know, oh, those are poems. So there's going to be the use of poetic analogies. So when we read, the Lord is my shepherd, we don't think, oh, God works on a farm. We, go, we know what that means. It's poet, 
poetry, analogy, for the sake of saying God leads me and protects me. Okay, so when we turn to Joshua, what kind of literature are we starting to read? Ancient Near Eastern battle literature, which is a distinct genre. And in this genre, what they do in every ancient Near Eastern culture, including the Israelites, is that when they tell Bible, uh, battle stories, they use exaggeration to make their point. So, for example, in Joshua 11.4, it says that the enemy troops that Joshua and his soldiers went up against were, quote, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, unquote. Now, does Joshua really go up against more soldiers than the number of every human being who has ever been born? Obviously, no. This is ancient Near Eastern battle language to say they had a lot more people than we did. Okay. Now, I think we should all be able to understand this in our time and place because, you know, they, we, in sports, we have this thing called trash talk. Okay, a friend of mine worked in the, on the sports desk of the Denver Post for a while, and he told me one of his favorite headlines while he worked there was, St. Francis clobbers cardinals. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> but you, no, seriously, you go to any tailgate party for, say, Division I football, and, and fans are going to be saying stuff like, man, we crushed them. Now, did they really put the other team's players into a trash compactor like they use at the junkyard? No, they did not. We decimated them. Did they really count off every 10th player on the other person's team and kill that poor person? No, they did not. What does that language mean? It means we won by a couple touchdowns. Now, just as sports fan language uses exaggeration to make a point which we all understand, so does ancient Near Eastern battle literature. In 830 BC, for example, Misha, the king of Moab, says this, quote, Israel has utterly perished for always. And you're like, whoa, that's news. Like Moab obliterated the entire nation. There is nothing and no one left standing in Israel in 830 BC. Uh, nope, just means Moab won one battle. As we know, Israel was doing just fine, thank you, for several more centuries. Now, let me show you this from the Bible. If you look at Joshua 10 and verses 38 and 39, which are in your first reading there tonight, you'll see that it says, then Joshua and the Israelites turned back and attacked Debir. Now remember that name for a moment, Debir. He captured the town, its king, and all of its surrounding villages. He completely destroyed everyone in it, leaving no survivors. Now a little later though, Joshua gives the captured town of Debir to his old friend Caleb, and the Bible tells us in Joshua 15, 15, which is down near the bottom of your reading, from there he, Caleb, went to fight against the people living in the town of Debir. And you're going, well, uh, wait, wait, wait. Who's he fighting against? They all got wiped out, remember? Joshua and his folks just wiped them out. There wasn't a person left standing in the entire region, let alone the city, but now apparently, Caleb's got to go up and fight those people. How can there be any people left? The answer is ancient Near Eastern battle language. Joshua won decisive victories, but there were still people there. And you can do it again in Joshua 11. We read there, Joshua destroyed all the descendants of Anak. He killed them all and completely destroyed their towns. But we read later in Joshua 15, 
Caleb has to drive out the three groups of Anakites. Were they driven out? Or does he have to drive them out? Okay. So, in fact, when we're reading the book of Joshua, if we don't know how to read it as ancient Near Eastern battle literature, it will never make sense. Because you read the book, and you're reading along, and it sounds like Joshua has conquered every last person living in the land of Canaan. That's your feeling as you're reading along. And then you get to the end of his life, and at the end of the book, and Joshua has to tell the Israelites, oh, by the way, make sure you don't associate with those other people still in the land. I thought they were all gone. Nope, the Canaanites are still there. And they're still there for hundreds of years. And we go to the next book, Judges, where in fact, usually the Canaanites are doing the whooping. Okay? And they're still there when you get to the time of David and Solomon and the monarchy. They still have to deal with Canaanites. Archaeology confirms this. As Britannica.com says, the archaeological evidence indicates that the process of conquering the land was lengthy. So based on all of this evidence, writer Luke Cauley concludes that, quote, despite the appearance of horrific genocide then, this was no such thing. It was a limited military move. And scholars William Webb and Gordon Est, IVP product placement here, agree, quote, only the key leaders of that city, the king, and a sufficient number of the fighting force to remove the military threat were defeated and killed by the Israelites in battle. So when we read it with some genre understanding, we go, was it a battle? Yes. Was it genocide? No. And the entire book of Joshua and Judges all starts to make sense when we know that. Well, that's suggestion number one. Now for suggestion number two. We need to see the sweep of the Bible, the entire Bible in its cultural context to understand where these kind of battle literature fits in. The Bible, as you know, is a big, big book, so very understandably, people dip in and dip out. They don't tend to go cover to cover. Okay, and so many who do that, dip in, dip out, dip in, dip out, get this impression. They go, man, that Old Testament God is like really mean and angry, but the New Testament Jesus is really nice. I don't know, I don't get that. But anyway, there you go. Well, yes, when you read the entire Bible, though, in its context, a different picture will emerge. And now let me take you on a little journey. You ready? Let's start in Genesis. I got time if you got time. <laughs> okay. We know Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates the world. In the Babylonian story of how creation happens, there's this god Marduk. And Marduk goes into battle against this female god, Tiamat. And Marduk, he's a bad dude. And so he takes his arrow and he actually shoots his arrow right into Tiamat. Bad day for her. And her insides spill out. Sorry, friends, for the comic book violence here. And which Marduk then picks up and uses to make the sky and the earth. So, in other words, God is violent and the whole earth begins in battle and gore. Then you go to our Bible, and how does the God uh, Yahweh of our Bible create the world in Genesis? By speaking his creative word. There's no violence at all. Just order and beauty. 
Now, fast forward in the Bible from Genesis to when uh, the books of Samuel and so on, when the Israelites decide they want a king. And why, if you've read that, you know that God is actually hurt. He takes that personally as rejection of him as their king. Now they want a human king. And, and there are several reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is that any human king will go ahead and build a war machine, which is what God does not want. So he sends the prophet Samuel to go back and tell the people and warn them, look, you want a king? This is how a king's going to reign over you. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment, and God does not want that. So the people go ahead anyway. And the king builds his army, but even here, God challenges the usual. Now, in the ancient world, war horses were like the way we view missiles or planes. You want a lot of them if you're going into war. The more you got, the safer you feel. But what does God instruct his kings to do? Not to get into an arms race. Quote, the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. Then you move forward from the time of the early kings to King David. Now, in that day, all rulers would do, as the scholars say, and I'm, I love this phrase, battle, build, and brag. Okay, so first, you battle your enemies. If you win, you take some of the loot that you get from them, and you build a temple to your God, okay? And then in the temple of your God, you brag. You put up these scenes of you conquering. Usually the, the image of the king is huge, and the image of the, the poor schleps that the king has just defeated are tiny, and they're not doing well. And then when you go up to the temple, that's what you see. So what happens when it's time for King David to build a temple to Yahweh? Here's what God tells him. You must not build a temple to honor my name. And why not? for you are a warrior and have shed much blood. God's like, I'm not the same kind of God as all those other ones out there. I, I, I'm not honored by all that bloodshed. He's a different sort of God. And when his temple gets built, what are the scenes in his temple? There is not one battle scene in the entire deal. Not one. Instead, what do you get? Pictures of pomegranates, lilies, flowers, winged heavenly creatures, animals. In other words, not violence or destruction, but beauty. All right, you move from King David to the prophets, and what do you find in the prophets? Verses like this one from Isaiah where God cries out, my heart's cry for Moab is like a lament on a harp. I am filled with anguish for Kir Harhaseth. Now, those are old names, may not mean much to us, but what's going on right here is God's crying for the people who hate his people. He's crying when they suffer. This is unprecedented. And finally, the psalm writer sums up God's heart this way. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire which is exactly what you find in Jesus. When Jesus comes and says, I and the Father are one, he means it. And he says stuff like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. He tells Peter, put away your sword. 
One of his 12 apostles, Simon the Zealot, is used to having religion and violence fused. And he converts him out of that. And then he goes and converts a guy named Paul, who in his world has violence and religion fused. And he converts him out of that. And in his death, Jesus is treated like a captured war enemy, stripped, tortured. He absorbs the horrifying war violence of the world, and he does it for people from all people groups, not just one. You move from the Gospels finally to Revelation. You made it. And you say, well, isn't Jesus depicted there, though, as a conqueror on a white horse? Yes, he is. And how does Jesus win the final battle, the ultimate conflict of good and evil? Not with armies, not with weapons. By himself, by the death he endured, and with the words from his mouth. So where does this leave us as we read the conquests in Joshua? Well, Let's be honest, there are moments when you read the Bible where you will still find things that distress us. There are times where people do not listen to God, they don't connect to God, or they think God is saying something, whatever, and they do a lot of things that are distressing. We need to be honest that God's people have been involved in way too many wars, and and accept that, that is true. But we also will meet a God who is internally consistent, who is constantly limiting weapons, stopping wars. There's a reason why the Israelite army is the only army of its time that never sold its POWs off as slaves. And I could go into much more, but it would require me comparing how humane, relatively speaking, Israelite practices were to their surrounding cultures, which were so horrific, they cannot be mentioned in a public sermon. They were 40 times more humane than the surrounding cultures. Were they there at the Geneva Convention all the time? Not yet. But you know what? I've noticed the countries today are usually not at the Geneva Convention all the time. Okay. So then you go, well, yeah, but what a, was it justifiable for Joshua to go in? Well, this is a complicated question, and I won't completely solve it in the final minute. But I, I think about it this way. You talk to a typical American person and you say, was, there, was it justifiable to, for the Union to attack the Confederate, Confederacy in the American Civil War? Now, there are some Deep South folks who will tell you no. But most people are going, yeah. Now, that was a horrible bloodbath. But why do we say that? Because it rid the world, or our country, or at least got a good start, of ridding our country of the scourge of human slavery. The war, not good, but was it needed in that time for that purpose? Okay. Now you take Joshua, who's going into a land with limited strikes and a very gradual kind of acquisition or conquest of the land, to a culture where they put kids in the fires. But I've noticed people who go, yeah, U.S. Civil War, totally justifiable. World War II, totally justifiable. Joshua, horrible. How could any God ever allow that? Now, this doesn't take away all the questions that we may have. But I will say this. If the Lord is sometimes depicted as a warrior, he is 
the most reluctant warrior there has ever been or there ever will be. Amen.